Hello, this is message number 16 of the Sermon on the Mount series from Bethel Baptist Church of Oskaloosa. Today, February 2nd, 2020, we will look at Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 15 with Pastor Cox. We are continuing our study uh, on the Sermon on the Mount. And in the midst of that, we are in what we might call a mini-series. In fact, today we come to the final sermon in the mini-series on the Lord's pattern for prayer within the larger series of our study that we've been doing on the Sermon on the Mount. And as we think through this, uh, one of the important principles that we have continually come back to is simply that uh, when we pray in faith and in conformity to God's will, our prayer is a sanctifying grace that changes our life dramatically. So when we pray in faith and in conformity to God's will, our prayers are a sanctifying grace that changes our lives dramatically. That being true, we have said, and we will continue to say, that prayer is vital to every aspect of the Christian's life. It's absolutely foundational for everything we do as believers. We cannot, for example, from this passage, give or fast properly unless we are in constant communion with God. The only giving that honors and glorifies God and that God wants is that which is sincere giving, that which is willing, that which is done for his glory. Giving that comes from a life of personal communion with God. If you think about the act of fasting, and and we're really going to delve into this uh, idea next week, the idea of fasting and how it fits in in our Christian walk today, but we're going to work on that next week. But, But you think about fasting. It is absolutely meaningless apart from prayer. Because apart from prayer, if if you're fasting and you're doing it apart from prayer, it's apart from God. And it's nothing more than a meaningless religious ritual if you're doing it to be, quote-unquote, spiritual. So if you're fasting to be spiritual, but you're not prayed up, you're not, you're not walking with the Lord in the way that you should, and those kind of, it's just, it's meaningless. So the big idea of our uh, sermons series, there we go, is, is that every believer must see prayer as a lifeline to God and an absolute act of glory to God. Everything that we do as believers should, must bring glory to God, including our prayer lives. And so we need to get to the place where we see prayer as a lifeline to God. You, you've got to be able to see it like you can't survive without prayer. I was thinking about this again this week as I'm working through this, and I'm thinking about how many days I actually can walk through, and if not praying at a meal, 
I maybe spent very, very, very little time praying or in communion with the Lord. I think that's probably true for all of us. That, that this is, we, we've got to see that our very existence as believers has got to be locked in with God in that lifeline, and that our prayer is an act of glory to God, glorifying Him, because when we pray, we recognize who He is. So again, this morning, we come to the final part of this mini-series. We might even call it a postscript. Now, I, I use that word postscript. And then as I was studying this week, I'm thinking, how many of our younger generation even know what a postscript is? Some of us who are older, now I get to include myself in that group, we remember what it was like to write a letter. And when you got to the end of the letter, you would sign your name, best wishes or love, Steve. There's one more thing I wanted to say. And so you would write PS for postscript, and then you would write out whatever it was you wanted them to know. So this morning, this message is kind of a postscript. So to make the younger people feel better, I went to dictionary.com and looked up the word postscript. And here's what it says. Postscript carries the meaning, first, of a paragraph or a phrase added to a letter that has already been concluded and signed by the writer. Secondly, any addition or supplement as one appended by the writer to a book to supply further information. I always thought when it was in a book it was called an epilogue, but apparently postscript would work too. Either way, this morning, we come to the end of our time together in the Lord's Prayer. And we want to look this morning at just two points. I'm not going to overwhelm you this morning, just two points. And we want to begin with the doxology. The doxology. Take your Bibles, Matthew chapter 6, look at verse 13. The second part of that verse. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever. Amen. One of my favorite parts of Scripture is the doxology. A doxology is a lit liturgical formula of praise to God. There's a certain regal sound to the doxology as you speak it out loud and, and you make it that declaration of praise. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. All of these things are God's. They are God's in abundance. Praise is always fitting, a fitting way to conclude a time of prayer. And that's what the writer has done here. Now, I've got to be honest with you. There's a textual problem here. And we've, we've never skirted textual problems. I want to look at something, and I'm going to talk about something this morning that may or may not be in the version of the Bible that you have in your lap or on your phone. It's re referred to as the, the Lord's Prayer here. The statement, for yours is the power, or the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever, may not be included 
in your chosen version of the Bible. Now, the question naturally arises, then why is it not included? Here's the reason. When the King James Version was translated, the translation was made from the very best manuscripts, Greek, Aramaic manuscripts of the day. Since then, better manuscripts have been discovered, and we find that this part of verse 13 is omitted in some of those better transcripts. This falls under a category of theology called textual criticism. Okay? If you are really interested in textual criticism, go for it. Because there's guys with a lot more alphabet soup after their name than I will ever have that can't get this all figured out. So here is the question. Does it mean that we should just throw out this verse? Should we place this portion of Scripture in the same category as you would the apocryphal Gospels? If you remember, when we were doing our study through the Gospel of John, we came to John chapter 8, the woman taken in adultery. And if you remember, we said that in many of the best or better manuscripts, that story doesn't even exist. It's not in there. I would say that we leave this in here because it does not adversely affect the text, the message, this particular portion of Scripture. It fits incredibly well. It's simple term, it causes no harm, causes no foul, and in fact enhances our praise and worship of God the Father. Amen? You'll remember that we walked our way through that story in John chapter 8. We will examine this portion of Scripture as well. I'm willing to deal with this doxology as genuine, though perhaps maybe it wasn't part of the original when, when Matthew wrote it. It certainly seems to fit perfectly, doesn't it? And God has certainly blessed it. Although the original may have not been in the account, the words are perfectly fitting in the passage. They express truths that are scriptural. These words form a beautiful doxology declaring the preeminence of God seen in the greatness of his eternal kingdom, his eternal power, and his eternal glory. In fact, these words are an echo of 1 Chronicles chapter 29 and verse 11. And to the minds and hearts of Matthew's Jewish readers, they would have been a moving and appropriate climax to this portion of Scripture. Listen to 1 Chronicles 29 11. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty, indeed everything that is in the heavens and in earth. Yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all. So, we're going to walk through this because it is part of this passage. Let's talk about the elements of doxology. 
the elements of doxology. Now, what I want to do in this particular portion this morning is I would like us to take a look at three elements of praise, three elements of praise that we find in this doxology. Three elements of praise we find in the doxology, number one being God's kingdom. God's kingdom. Now, we have a great deal to say about God's kingdom. Make no apologies for going over the same thing again, for repetition is a sound principle of teaching and learning. And I want us to remember that one day God's kingdom will be established. We must remember that this, is, uh, that this kingdom uh, will not come by human manipulation. It will not come by ecumenical movement or any man-made program. God's kingdom will come on God's terms. We can't make it work. There's a theology that says inside of every person is, 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 is a basic goodness. And if we'll fan that fire, it'll eventually make them an excellent person, a very good person, and... The extent of that is, is that man is continually getting better and better and better, and God's going to have no choice but to come back and set up his kingdom. I got news for you. It ain't working. Man is not getting better and better and better. If anything is true, it may be the opposite. That man is continuing to spiral downward. Sometimes spiraling faster than others, it seems, but still not getting better and better. The kingdom of God will only be established in one way, and that is by the catastrophic and cataclysmic return of Jesus Christ physically to this earth to put down all unrighteousness and establish his kingdom. That will be a day in which power and glory will be his, and it's expressed in these words, yours is the kingdom. It's God's kingdom, and he is the one who will bring it back. Jesus will come down, and, and he will set up his kingdom on this earth. Number two, we see God's power. Move to that second element of God's power. And, and this is an age of power. We live in an age of power. I mean, think about the, the, the power that, that we know of. The ability to get in an airplane and to fly from coast to coast in a matter of hours. Rockets that, 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 that take people into outer space. Think about the, the nuclear power that is available to mankind today. And yet in this age of power, when the unheard things are being accomplished in the material world, it has become an age of powerlessness for those in the church. This is an age that seems sometimes from our view to be powerless, and yet Jesus is declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, Romans chapter 1 and verse 4. Jesus also says, All authority, that is power, has been given to me in heaven and on earth, Matthew 28, 18. 
And further, Jesus told the disciples, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Jesus has had all power given to him. And thanks be to God, he is coming again. Amen? Amen. And, and we are his. And he understands our struggles. He is coming again. He is going to, to have the power to correct the evils of this world. He is coming in power. His, his is the kingdom. His is the power. Number three, his is the glory. What is glory? How do you define that? How do you, how do you, how do you put thought to that? How do you put words to what is glory? John Piper's written this. He said, defining the glory of God is impossible because it's more like the word beauty than the word basketball. Did you get that? Defining the word glory is incredibly difficult because the word glory is more like the, the word beauty than it is the word basketball. If somebody says they've never heard of a basketball, they don't know what it is, and so they say, define for me a basketball, that, then that would not be hard for you to do. You would use your hands, and, and, and you'd say something like this, well, it's, it, it, it's round, and it's made out of leather or rubber, about 9 or 10 inches around in diameter, and you, you put air in it, you inflate it so it's, it's pretty hard, then, then you, can, you can bounce it. It bounces like this. And, and uh, uh, then um, you, can, you can throw it to people, and people can throw it to you, and, and you can run while you're bouncing the ball. And, and then there's a game where they, they put a, a, a round cylinder up on the wall, and, and, and the, the point of the game is to take the ball and throw it through the basket. And that's why they call it a basketball, right? Nod your heads like this. Okay, pretend you understood what I just told you about a basketball, all right? And at this point, most people would have a really good idea of what a basketball is. And they would be able to spot one, and they would probably, hopefully, be able to tell the difference between a basketball and a football and a soccer ball and a baseball, right? They, you would think they would be able to put that together. You cannot do that with the word beauty. There are some words in our vocabulary that, that we can communicate, not because we can uh, just say them, but because we can see them. We can point. If we point at things and see enough things together and say, that, that's it, that's it right there, that's, that's beautiful. That's beauty. You might have some common sense of beauty. But when you try to put the words beauty into words, it's really, really difficult. Now, for all the husbands in the room, if anybody ever asks you to define beauty, you just say, my wife. Okay? Apart from that, it's a struggle. All right? It's a struggle. And, and the reality is, is, is that's very, very difficult. So you and I are called to glorify God. What does that mean? How do you describe glory? 
You and I are called to glorify God. Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 16. Paul said, therefore, whether you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10.31. The chief business, the main thing that we as Christians are to do is to glorify God. To glorify God ought to be our primary concern, our primary goal as professing believers. You and I are to glorify God regardless of the results. We are to glorify Him and bring nothing of disrespect or disgrace to His name that would ever drive people away from Him. We are to glorify God in such a way that it draws people to Him. Not to us, but I guess I should, to Him. That it draws people to Him. In all truthfulness, how can we, after thinking quietly upon the undeserved love and the goodness of God poured out upon us, how can we not want to fall to our knees before him in thankful adoration of him and of his works. It is so easy for us to be so overwhelmed, so consumed by the issues and the trials and the hardships of our life that, that we miss out on all of the beautiful things that God is doing, all the, all the great things that God is doing. Because we get very myopic in our vision. And all we can see is all the problems that we have. And all of the things that, that aren't going the way we want them to. I, I think if, if we spent more time thinking about the fact that if you're here this morning and you know Jesus Christ is your personal Savior, you have received undeserved love and grace from God. And, and you need to be thinking about that. Yeah, you know what? You got a flat tire. Big deal. You know what? It's cold. Your car won't start. Shocker. You got a seven-year-old battery. Yeah, you know what? We got some health issues. Okay. I got a call this week from one of my kids. They said, Dad, how are you getting along with your new normal? That's a way to look at it, right? It's just a new normal. For a while, this is what it's going to be. All you fuzzy-faced people. But we understand that. I am a child of the king. For whatever reason, he loves me and drew me to himself. Totally undeserved love and goodness. God has blessed us beyond well, we should be able to conceive. When you stood up this morning and took that big, deep breath, 
That's God's grace. That's God's grace. Yeah, you know what? Life is hard. That may be the most understatement thing I say today. Life's hard. But for us as believers, we ought to fall on our knees every day glorifying God for his selfless love that he gives us because we're so undeserving for the goodness that he has blessed us with. Thankful in adoration for him and for his works. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Truth from the scriptures. The doxology. The second point I want to walk through this morning is the epilogue. The epilogue. Look at verses 14 and 15. For if you forgive men for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive, then your, heavenly fa- then your Father will not forgive your transgression. I find it incredibly interesting that the lesson that Jesus is giving about how to pray concludes with a reminder that follows the teaching of forgiveness found in verse 12. If you will, this is the Savior's own commentary on our petition to God to, for forgiveness. And the only one of the petitions to which he gives added insight. And thus, the importance here is amplified. If you forgive men for their transgressions, puts the principle in a positive mode, or it puts it on a positive note, if you will. Believers should forgive as those who have received judicial forgiveness from God. When the heart is filled with a forgiving spirit, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But Believers cannot know the parental forgiveness which keeps fellowship with the Lord, rich blessings and, 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 and things from the Lord, from, from the profuse, apart from forgiving others with every heart and every word. To forgive means to hurl away. An unforgiving spirit is inconsistent with one who has totally been forgiven. But it also brings a chastening. An unforgiving spirit brings a chastening from the Lord rather than his mercy. Our Lord illustrates this unmerciful response in the parable uh, in Matthew chapter 18, found in verses 21 to 35. There, I'll give it to you in a nutshell. There's a man who is forgiven an incredible, unpayable debt of, of what most commentators say would be like millions and millions and millions of dollars today. And it pictures the representation here is sin. And it, it represents the mercy of God given in our salvation. We understand that when we come to the Lord, we are sinners 
by nature and we're sinners by choice. And had God not drawn us, we would have cared less. And so what happens is, is that we receive this forgiveness for a debt of sin that we can never, never repay. It can't be done. That's the picture in Matthew chapter 18. And then this same man who is forgiven this incredible financial debt goes out and finds another person and refuses to forgive their minuscule debt. So the idea would be that I'm forgiven a, a, a financial debt of millions and millions and millions of dollars, and I go to Kent and I say, Kent, you owe me five bucks, and you either give me the five dollars or I'm going to have you thrown into prison. So take that. That's the idea. And what we find here is that the judge finds out how the man dealt severely with his friend, and so he sends him off to prison. Now, the point of all of that is that we have been forgiven so much that we ought to forgive others. And, and just, just so you know, this is not theoretical stuff that you need to know. This is real life Christianity. I, as your pastor, have walked through this in my life. Having had something happen to me that I held on to, and had that attitude said, I will never forgive them. And eventually I had to realize that what they had done to me was nothing compared to my sin before a holy God. And he was willing to forgive me. How can I then not forgive my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? If you do not forgive men, then your Father will not forgive your transgression. This states a truth of verse 14 in a negative way then. Really for emphasis. That the sin of an unforgiving heart and bitter spirit forfeits blessing and invites judgment. Is that... It's not what we want. The sin of an unforgiving heart and a bitter spirit forfeits blessing. Ever known anybody that's unforgiving and bitter? Well, don't you just love hanging around with them? Okay, that was a lot funnier when I wrote it in my office. No, you don't want to hang around with bitter people. They're not, they're not fun. They're not fun to be around. And it invites judgment into their lives. Even the Talmud taught that he who is indulgent toward others' faults will be mercifully dealt with by the supreme judge. 
How is your, how is your willingness to forgive? Now, I realize I, I'm, just, I'm just skating over the top of the issue here. There's a lot more stuff that goes into biblical forgiveness. I totally understand that. I know that. We don't have time to develop all of it this morning. But let me ask you this. How is your heart of forgiveness? When there's an issue, are you willing to forgive? Or do you want to hang on to it tenaciously? Or worse yet, do you hope for an opportunity for revenge? The sin of an unforgiving heart and a bitter spirit forfeits blessing and invites the judgment of God on our lives. So let me walk through the conclusion. There are petitions for believers to ask from God. God certainly wants us to come to him and lay our petitions before him. But as well, what we've seen as we've walked through here is that there are also some conditions for the answers to be received. And even more than that, our prayers are to be primarily concerned not with our own needs, but concerned with the exaltation of the name of God, the kingdom of God, and the will of God. Remember, the prayer begins with those things. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Before you get to the requests of man. And so we need to understand that when we come to God in prayer, it is primarily an act of worship. It is an act to help us to say thanks to the Lord for the many blessings and the things that he has given us Prayer is primarily worship. It is an act of worship. It is as much a part of worship as when we sing together or when we hear the preaching of God's word. Prayer needs to be in our minds on the same level as worship. And it ought to inspire us to thank God for the blessings that he's given us and it ought to be that which motivates our personal purity. Prayer is primarily worship what ought to inspire thanks to God and inspire or motivate us to personal purity. There's far more involved in this portion of Scripture than just repeating the words of Scripture verbatim. This is not Jesus telling us, pray this prayer. Jesus is telling us this is the pattern for your prayer life. Follow it. Glorify God. Understand. May it be 
May your prayer lives be a time of worship, inspiring us to thank God for his many blessings, to motivate us to personal purity. Father, we thank you this morning for the way that you work. We stand in awe of who you are, and God, we, we just we recognize that, that you are so gracious to us, so good to us. Everything that we have has come from you. Everything that we are is because of who you are. And Father, this morning, help us to recognize once again as we've walked through this whole idea of prayer that, that prayer is that opportunity that we have to give you glory, to stand in awe of who you are, the way that you have blessed us. Yes, Father, we have needs. We have those needs. And yes, Father, we know that you want us to come to you and, and to tell you what those needs are. And yet, Father, there is so much more to our prayer lives than just coming to you with a list of wants. Father, this morning, help us to examine our own hearts and our own lives. And Father, in all of this, we pray this morning that you would be glorified. We bring you the glory. We give it to you. And we thank you for your work in our lives. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.